Uh, we're in a series called Be the Church. That's a good example of it, but uh, a series called Be the Church. And this morning we're talking about Be Community. Uh, last week it was Be Converted. Um, and this week it's Be Community. And if you will, turn to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament towards the back. And Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll read from our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. And the book of Hebrews is an interesting book. It's uh, a book where the authorship is in doubt. We don't really know with any kind of certainty who the author of the book of Hebrews is. Uh, a lot of people have been put forth as kind of who the author would be. Some have put forth uh, Barnabas or Paul. Um, it's doubtful that Paul wrote it. One, because um, Paul, when he, when he writes in his other books, he quotes from the Hebrew scriptures and, and the book of Hebrews quotes exclusively from the Greek Septuagint. In other words, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures back in that day. Uh, also, Paul usually had greetings in his letters. And he always talks about himself as having heard directly from the Lord. And in chapter 2 of Hebrews, it talks about those of us that heard from those um, who heard from the Lord. So there's just some interesting things that count against Paul. Um, the community seems to be one in, uh, in Rome or Italy uh, of a, a Jewish community that, I'm sorry, a Christian community in a Jewish culture uh, that are undergoing persecution. And the temptation here is to revert back to um, what would have been a bit more culturally acceptable where they were, which was Judaism. So in other words, things as a Christian community have gotten difficult and it's easier to revert back to what is more normal or more culturally acceptable or easier or what would have been more familiar in that, um, in that kind of environment. But we don't really know who's writing it. Uh, even the third century theologian Origen says, uh, who it was that really wrote the epistle uh, of Hebrews, God only knows. Okay, so the basic theme of this book, uh, if you were to read from the beginning all the way through, is this idea of better, that Christ is better than the law, Christ is the, the chief priest, Christ is better than Moses, Christ is better than or he's supreme, the supremacy of Christ, than all of these things that you would think would be the most important thing. And so this argument comes forward that Christ is better, Christ is supreme, Christ is where we find our life, Christ is where we find our power, Christ is really where it's at. Uh, and then we get to this chapter, chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading in verse 19. So it's kind of this resolve to all of this, uh, the supremacy of Christ talk, and we get to this resolve in chapter 10 and, and beginning in verse 19, we see this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now that verse is, is a, a very stout, heavy theological kind of um, chunk that would have made sense to a Jewish audience, probably wouldn't have made much sense to a, a Gentile audience. But what's going on here is it's the whole picture of the temple. 
in Jerusalem. So uh, the temple in Jerusalem where people are supposed to go and find fellowship with God or closeness with God or come into God's presence has this idea of the altar and sprinkling and being cleansed from sin. And when you're, when you're doing that, then you can come close to where God is. But there's this curtain that separates us from, uh, fully from God. We can only get somewhat close to God, but then there's this curtain separating um, everything unclean from the, the Holy Spirit uh, in the Holy of Holies. And there's a high priest that presides over this, and ultimately that high priest is the one that mediates between God and the rest of us. And that high priest is the only one who can go into the presence of God once a year on pain of death if he doesn't do it in the right kind of way. So this is kind of the temple order, the temple structure, and it's this, this yearning and this desire to finally be all the way uh, with God or close to God. And if you go to Jerusalem today, it is, you can, I mean, you can just taste it. It's so palpable that when you go to the Wailing Wall, which is... Um, kind of the closest you can get to um, what used to be the temple uh, or the temple mount. That there are these old stones going all the way back to Solomon and then King Herod and uh, in terms of what frames up uh, the temple mount. And by going to that wall and touching and praying and sticking prayer cards in between the cracks, this is the closest for Orthodox Jews or for devout Jews that they're getting to what was their temple, okay? This is the closest they can get to it, both in terms of the actual structure or, or certain stones. This is the closest they can get because they're forbidden to go on top of the Temple Mount, which is, which is where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is and the Dome of the Rock. But so you can see people there praying and, and beseeching God, but this place matters to them. So it's, it's something really important within that kind of idea, and this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, that this was the system of coming close to God, of finding fellowship with God, and that now, because of the supremacy of Christ, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of Jesus as our high priest that, that leads us and kind of mediates for us, that we can come boldly to the throne of God. So listen again. It says, therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, he's talking about us entering the most holy place, being in the presence of the Holy Spirit, in the presence of God, um, since we have confidence to do that, we're not going to die because of the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So because of the sprinkling of the blood that forgives us of our sins. And because his body, because he's died uh, and we get to go through that curtain. And because we have a great high priest that he still stands uh, or still sits at the right hand of God, that, that he intercedes on our behalf. Because of all these things, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our, bo our, our bodies washed with pure water. We've been made clean and we can find fellowship with God. So the writer uh, to the Hebrews, the writer to 
a Jewish community, this writer who, who's talking to people that know the theology of God's people is saying, let us come basically into the throne room of God and have fellowship with him because of Jesus Christ. It's powerful words. And then it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. There's something really interesting here in talking about this deep theology and fellowship and closeness with God that comes in our faith in Jesus Christ. The writer here immediately turns to saying there's a communal element to this. There's a communal element to this. So this is where our faith is taking us, that we're going to have this relationship and this fellowship with God, and it's pretty crazy stuff. Um, this, this stuff that's been bought for us by the blood of Jesus. And so now let's encourage one another towards love and good deeds. We're going to love God. Now, now let's love others. Let's look how we can encourage one another. There's a reciprocal element. When I'm looking to love you, I can assume that hopefully you're looking to love me as well, that, that let's, let's encourage one another toward love and good deeds. And let's not forsake the meeting together or the gathering together of the saints, the coming together at the throne, that we're all going to be as one family. Let us not forsake that as some are in the habit of doing. And even more so, let's, let's take serious this gathering, this thing called the church. The word ecclesia simply means gathered together or assembled together. Let us not forget church and, and how much more as we see the day approaching and the trials grow. There's something, um, I think, prophetic about this for, for, for my generation or for our culture, however you want to say it. Um, but it's this. When we talk about the height of finding God and finding fellowship with God and finding intimacy with God and finding closeness with God, at the height or the the closeness of it, proximity, right? At the closest point of this, the writer to the Hebrews wants to immediately turn and say, there's something about this that is connected to church. There's something about this that, that speaks to our discipline of going to church, of being found assembled together and, uh, and I think that's really, really telling. I think our culture would say today that in intimacy with God, in fellowship with God, oftentimes church is the problem. Or church is inconsequential to my relationship with God. In fact, if you were to tell me that church is somehow necessary for my relationship with God or, or that it's connected in any way, I would kind of want to push away from you because I don't like being told what to do. I don't like feeling like there's any kind of duty or guilt. And at the end of the day, I like this, this radical freedom of 
the fact that I can come, I can come boldly before the throne of God and find my Father, full stop. That I like that, I want it, and I'm going to fight to protect that against anyone who's going to try and smuggle something in that says, I have to somehow um, get tied up with religion or other people or church, which is messy um, because it's filled with messy people. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk about a barn being clean, right? Right? The only barn that's clean is the barn that's empty. But when you take sheep and you put sheep in a barn or a pen or wherever you put sheep, um, I should have asked my wife before I got up to talk because she's from Prineville and, and she understands these things. Um, wherever you put sheep, once you put sheep there, the place you put the sheep is messy. Okay? Whenever you put a bunch of Christians somewhere, where you put those Christians is messy. Because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty messy. Um, and I think that a lot of the people I know in this church are pretty messed up. I'll, I'll try not to look at you um, right now and give it away. But, but when we come together, that place we come together is messy. Antioch, if it was empty, would be really clean. But it wouldn't be dynamic. And there wouldn't be much nurturing going on. There wouldn't be much life going on. There wouldn't be much of anything going on. But there's something interesting about our desire to protect this sense of individual or autonomous faith that I have this beautiful gift of grace and forgiveness and salvation that has opened up this possibility, this relationship for me with God, period. But that's not what we see in Scripture. The writer of Hebrews immediately wants to turn this communal and say that this, this church, this gathering together is somehow really important. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What's really interesting about this verse is it, it points out something that I don't think we often talk about in church, and I never really heard it growing up. I always heard the guilt part. You should go to church. It's a spiritual discipline. You should build the habit of going to church. It should be routine. It should be regular. Now, I agree with all those things. I think it's a shame um, if we don't realize how important it is just to do it week after week. It's one of those things that when you look back, you see the value. For me, I want my kids remembering that they came to church every single week, whether, whether they liked it or not. And they were the last to leave because I want my kids to go to church when they're adults. When do I want them to go to church? I want them to go to church the most, like when I picture it, when they least feel like it or when their lives are so messy that they, they literally can't wake up in the morning because they're depressed or they feel all alone or insecure. It's in those moments that I want my kids 
to have the pattern of waking up, brushing their teeth, coming to church. And how am I going to instill that in my kids? Real simple. I promise them ice cream every, every Sunday <laughs> after church. No, I, seriously, uh, we don't promise our kids anything. Um, there was a season when our kids hated church. Now we couldn't keep them away from it. It's interesting how that works, right? We pushed through it. But so I, I believe in the, ha- uh, the habit. I believe in the discipline. I believe in the value. I believe in creating the sense of tradition and memory. I believe in all that. But listen to how it's worded in Hebrews. It's not talking about build the habit of going to church. It says what? It says break the habit that other people are building of not going to church. Do you see that? I never heard it put that way growing up. Um, But if you don't go to church, if you don't go to church regularly, or if you have friends that don't go to church, they have a habit of not going to church, of not gathering together in in Christian community. So I think the starting point of grace is not guilting people with build the habit to go, but looking at them and saying, this habit you have of not going, let's talk about that habit. Is that the habit you want? Is, is that the habit that um, you, you thought about and you chose? Is that the habit that's going to get you uh, where you want to go? How can we break that habit? Because somehow you belong in community. Somehow you were created for Christian community. And so what are those things that are keeping you stuck not going to church? So not saying what are the things that are going to get you to church, but what are the things that are, that are getting you stuck not going to church? And I think in America, one of the things that that has people stuck not going to church, stuck in that habit, is they don't realize the significance or the importance, biblically, theologically, of church. I write about this in my new book, so I'm stealing from it this morning. Um, But uh, I had a professor that wrote on church a lot, and it was really important because I think it clarifies a lot of what's going on. We use a lot of language, and it becomes really mushy. And so let me try and break that language apart. In the early church, there was the church, and then there was what was called the Catholic church. And the word Catholic church back then, everybody who was Christian was Catholic. It was before the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, okay? So all Christians were a part of the, in some sense, Catholic church, or going even back further before the East-West split, or what was called the Great Schism, going all the way back into the first thousand years of the church, anyone who was a Christian was a part of the Catholic church. What did the word Catholic mean? It meant universal. It meant universal. The universal Catholic church, the Apostles' Creed even talks about it that way. But so if you were a part of the, the church at Ephesus or a part of the church at Philippi or in Jerusalem or Athens, you were a part of that local church. But when you wanted to talk about how you're connected with all the other believers out there, you would say, we're a part of this universal Catholic church that kind of holds us all together. Now, when uh, we got to the Protestant Reformation, people didn't want to use the word Catholic to talk about um, what binds us all together. And so Zwingli, the great Swiss reformer, came up with invisible church versus visible church. Okay? So the visible church is what you can see uh, in front of you. The invisible church is 
all of those people that are truly in Christ that somehow were made up um, of, of this kind of fellowship where we're all bonded together in this invisible church. Does that make sense? It's fair language, isn't it? That if I talk about believers in, um, in Africa right now, in the Congo, uh, or in South Africa, or believers in Thailand, that somehow there's a bond that connects us that I can't necessarily see, but it's this invisible bond where we're all connected spiritually to Christ um, because he is Lord over all. Correct? Okay. But there's a downside to this. And I've heard it, um, I've heard it my whole life, and I used to deal with it when I was a college pastor, and I had these, all these... Uh, couple hundred Biola students that would come to my college group and they would come and they would have all these Bible classes and they would have chapel with some of the best speakers in the country chapel three times a week and so they would come to uh, my college group and they'd be trying to really decide am I going to join a church and the college group was uh, I focused the whole thing on you come you serve somewhere in the church you sit in the main service and you, you involve yourselves in the intergenerational aspect of this church. This isn't just a, a college group. This is a, a, a group that, that connects you to the church at large, right? And so I'd end up on all these conversations and they'd say, listen, I have teaching. I have fellowship. I have uh, chapel service and worship. I have all of the pieces um, why do I really need to get involved in a church? Um, I'm, I, I'm a part of, two things would be said, I'm a part of the invisible church, um, so I'm thinking I'm just going to not come to church, or Biola is my church. So arguments usually go one of two ways. Uh, I don't need a, lo a local kind of church expression, I'm a part of the invisible church, um, or Biola, something other than church, is my church, okay? Think of everyone you know who isn't really actively involved in a church. And I guarantee you, if they're a Christian, they're using um, or they've used with you an argument that says, I don't need a local church because I'm a part of the invisible church. Or this other thing um, is going to serve as or replicate church for me. Is that fair? I mean, I'm pretty sure it is, but I just need a little, I'm put, I need a little back and forth here, okay? So let's take the first one real quickly, uh, the invisible church. The invisible church, uh, which is about as helpful as the invisible gym or the invisible restaurant, um, is something that was never contemplated when we use the word church in the New Testament. So here's Robert Sosi, my professor at Biola. Um, who at the time was in his 70s, and he wrote the book, The Church and God's Program, and he says this, As for membership in an invisible church without uh, fellowship with any local assembly, this concept is never contemplated in the New Testament. The universal church was the universal fellowship of believers who met visibly in local assemblies. He goes on and says, each individual assembly is the church in that place. And that the local assembly is the one body of Christ particularized in a certain locality. So when you see the word church in the New Testament, 
every time you see it, to the church here, to the churches there, it's always talking about church as a specific body of believers that meet together. The New Testament never uses the word church to talk about the invisible church. It's certainly a helpful concept, but, but it's not a concept tied to church. Okay, it's a concept tied maybe to the family or to the body as a whole, but not the specific church. The word ecclesia or church always in the New Testament refers to something particularized. Just like an invisible restaurant or gym makes no sense, invisible church makes no sense either. It's not what's envisioned for God's people. The other thing, what about, uh, what a, I, well, let's just camp on that for a minute. Turn to the book of Ephesians, if you will. Book of Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. And in verse 11 it says this. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The argument, I don't need church. I'm just, I'm a part of the invisible church. I'm going to go boldly to the throne of God, full stop, and it's me and him. The Bible would suggest that you can't find maturity or you can't reach fullness in the knowledge of the Son of God, that you can't ultimately be built up without other people that serve a role in Christian community. It's a pretty egotistical or prideful or maybe even ignorant thought to say, now that I've found entrance to the throne of God because of Christ, I have all I need with just myself and God. And I have no need for anyone else because the Bible says that God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be teachers. Why? To prepare and equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And then it goes on to speak to our maturity. That somehow, just like um, I've been born... I'm now human, and guess what? Not only am I human, but if I was born in America, I have citizenship in America. When I turn the right age, I can vote. You can't stop me. I don't need you to vote. Uh, when I turn the right age, I can drink. I don't need you to, I don't need to go to school for that. I don't need any teachers. I don't need any parents. I don't need anybody. I've got citizenship. Someday I'm going to be able to vote. Someday I can drink and hold a gun. And I don't need you. I don't need you to grow, to learn, or to become mature. That's what, that's what we're really saying when we say, because of the blood of Christ, I now have access. 
I'm a citizen, and you know what? I have rights as a citizen, and so I'm going to assert my rights in saying, I don't need you. I'm going to be a part of this invisible body of Christ, uh, this invisible church, and when I need to, I can talk to, to the big guy myself. So, so that's really all I need. That's all I'm going to choose. And not only that, what's, what's really worse is as a parent, sometimes saying, that's all my family needs. And it, it's not what's contemplated in Scripture. It's not what's contemplated in Scripture. So what about the people that say, well, of course we need Christian community. We need a body. We need a church. But Biola is going to be my church. Biola is going to be my church. Um, and so I used to say to those people, like, okay, let's think about this. Biola is going to be your church. Um, you, you're going to go to Huntington Beach. They used to do an evangelism thing on Fridays. You're going to go to Huntington Beach, and you're going to witness, and you're going to, you're going to find somebody that actually wants to be led to the Lord, and you're going to lead them to the Lord, and they're going to say a prayer and what's the next step when you've, when you've helped introduce someone to Jesus? Uh, and they would always say, well, I'm going to tell them they need to find a good church. Okay. <clears throat> All right, so let's role play here. You just led me to the Lord. I'm a guy, uh, maybe a runaway kid down at Huntington Beach. And uh, you just led me to the Lord. And you just told me that I should find a good church. Yep. Okay, I'll go to yours. Where do you go to church? Well... I go to the school called Biola, and, and I, it kind of serves as my church. Okay, I'll go there. Well, you can't. What do you mean I can't? Well, you'd have to be enrolled. Well, okay, I'll enroll. Um, obviously, it's free, right? No. No, it's not free. Um, well, I mean, obviously, it's open to everyone, isn't it? Uh, no. 1,200 on the SATs, and I don't know, I'm making that up, uh, 1,100, 1,100, I don't know what it is. Um, it's obviously higher than Azusa Pacific, um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, what do you mean I can't, I can't go to church where you go to church? can't go to church where I go. Um, that sounds a bit funny, doesn't it? Or what about when you graduate? Biola is my church. It was such a good church that I just graduated this spring and now I can't go anymore. Um, did, does the church, is the church something you get kicked out of? Like, really? Uh, or I used to get frustrated with Biola and I would talk to administration, stuff like this. Stop doing missions trips on spring break. Stop, be, stop trying to play the church and send your kids to churches where they can do spring break missions trips. And so I, I started creating some at this Baptist church I worked at, and, and we would go to different places. And what I used to tell them is, and, and so students would be leading these trips. And I'd be like, don't lead a Biola missions trip. Go get involved in a church and lead a, a missions trip from that church. And they're like, why does it matter? And I'm like, it matters because you're denying the church your presence and your gifts and the blessing that you could bring and you're, you're doing it for, for no reason. And they're like, what are you talking about, Ken? And, and you're way too into this stuff. And I'm like, forget that part. But here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean. There's a whole lot of little old ladies that aren't going to Haiti after the earthquake. But they really care. 
about Haiti after the earthquake. And they want to pray for people that are going to Haiti after the earthquake. They want to they pray for missionaries and they want to encourage you. They might even want to give you some money um, and they want to hear the report when you come back. They deserve to be connected to the church. And when you, the 20-somethings that don't have kids and have all sorts of energy and have all sorts of discretionary time and, and have all sorts of sense of adventure, when you remove yourself from the church, you deny them the blessing of having that be a part of their family or their, their Christian community. And you deny these 12-year-olds and these 13-year-olds the ability to look up to role models that they need to see that are the kinds of, of, of 20-somethings they're supposed to be growing up into. You deny them of that. And, and you deny the church as a whole of being able to say, as a church, we're involved in the world and we're involved locally because you're saying, we don't need you guys. We're going to do it on, your, on our own. It's really interesting to me that when the people that have the most discretionary time, and I'm talking about the Biola kids, would, would get off on the side. They would do evangelism. They would do discipleship after-school programs. They would visit prison and they would, they would go on these missions trips. They would, they would do all these things. And then they'd go to churches and they'd say, the reason I don't want to go to you guys is because you guys don't do anything. You don't get involved in the world. You don't get involved in the city. You don't get involved in, in evangelism. And, and I used to be saying, why, why would you judge us for the big hole that we have on the demographic scale? Why would you judge us for the lack of the fruit that you would bear if you were with us? Don't you see that the church needs you? And so doing all these things on Biola, you go on a missions trip, but nobody, when you get back, is hearing that report. No kids are seeing that. You're just going on a trip with your peer group over spring break. That's not being the church. 1 Corinthians, if, if you'll turn there with me. First Corinthians chapter 12, right before we get to this passage on love, talks about the body of Christ again. I'll start in verse 21. First Corinthians 12, verse 21. Now the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body and that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. There's an interesting thing here. Who combines the members of the body? God does. God does. If we create our own pseudo-church, who creates the members of that little community? We tend to. So here's the thing about what I would call the pseudo-church, is that when people say, I don't need formalized church, 
I have a group of Christian friends, that's my church. Who put that group together? Is it really open? Can people find their way in? Does it have people in it that don't look like you, don't like the things you like, are kind of awkward? It's not really spiritual community. Um, Pete Kelly, who we're hiring, uh, who, who comes in a month, um, said this when he was interviewing with the lead team and, and the Antioch elders. Uh, he said, it's not really spiritual community until there's someone there that you wish wasn't. But when we create these little groups, one, we're putting them together ourselves and we're probably not bringing less honorable members into it. Um, it's probably a lot of people that look just like us. So if we're using a body analogy, if I'm a left elbow, I'm gonna find a group of friends that are a bunch of left elbows too, that like the things I like. I'm not gonna find um, people that are 20, 30 years different probably. I'm not going to find people that I have a hard time gelling with. I'm not going to find people that are passionate about things that I'm not passionate about. It's, it's not really the same thing as the kind of community, spiritual community that God puts together. Not only that, but let's continue on. It says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and workers of miracles, and all those having gifts. By the way, the you here in 1 Corinthians 12 is, is speaking directly to them as a community. Um, it's a whole Greek study, but we're not talking about the invisible church here. We're talking about the specific church of, um, that, that meets in Corinth. Okay, Now you, the church at Corinth, are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of that church. And in the church of God... Um, in, in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, all those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? No, but eagerly, uh, but eagerly uh, desire the greater of these gifts. And then it goes on and talks about love and our ability to sacrifice, um, sacrificial love one for another. So the idea is this. Um, there's a certain function to church that says we're incomplete if we don't have differences. The different parts of the body, just like my own body, are necessary for this thing to be vital. If I just go find a bunch of Christian friends, that's different than Christian community. Christian community isn't just fellowship. Christian community is some sort of an interdependence with enough difference and distinctiveness that somehow there's a give and take that helps this thing build itself up different than if it was just a bunch of Christian fellowship going on. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a really fascinating thing that somehow when we find church and we, when it's open and when it's multi-generational and all of these things, it begins to kind of just look like something only God could put together and that something that we come to for sacrifice as much as anything else. Certainly we get blessed by it, but we also bless others. Certainly we're served by it, but we also serve others. 
And it's an interesting thing for me when uh, we miss this dynamic because then we come to it and we treat it as an individual looking at one entity as, as if we're distinct from it. Does that church, um, putting a sticker on it, do they serve the community? Does that church, do they do enough overseas? Does that church spend enough money on this thing? And then I'm evaluating whether I like it or not. And I've actually heard people say, we don't tithe because we don't think Antioch does enough in the community. But you'll come on Sunday morning? So let me get this right. You'll trust Antioch with your soul and with the spiritual formation of your children, but not with your, your money. And, and is Antioch, if you're coming on Sunday mornings, really distinct from you? Or if you come on Sunday mornings, are you a part of Antioch? So wouldn't it be the same as saying, um, I don't serve the community enough? I think we have to understand this we language so much more than, than we are, are raised to understand. The New Testament envisions such an interdependent body, interconnected, that we can't talk about ourselves as distinct from it, as deserving special honor because the other parts of the body aren't as good as I, as I am or they don't really get it as much as I do. I'm better than them. No, we all come together. And together, collectively, we're the church, a messy church that is finding maturity and growing into the fullness of Christ together. So here's the interesting thing with serving the community. Um, I haven't served the homeless while well, we give, we, I haven't gone on an evening to serve the homeless in quite a while. My life lately has been really challenging, okay? Okay. Um, but I know a lot of people in this church that do. And you know what's cool about that? We serve the homeless. And I, I, uh, I haven't gotten a chance to be a part of repairing a car for a single mom or anything like that probably in quite a while. But I know that the Empty Nester group um, and, and some of the small groups at Antioch have done it multiple times in the last year. And I get excited because we, as Antioch, help single moms. And when Randy Jacobs or other people in this church go out and, and serve the community in medical ways, I rejoice in that because the gifts that God has given him somehow carry over to me because we are church family. Um, I, I, with my family, I don't, I don't separate myself off and say, I'm actually really good at doing family, but the rest of my family is really bad at doing family. I mean, it, it's like, no, I love my family. We're quirky at times, um, but, but we do some things pretty cool. Um, I don't help out with the youth as much anymore, but I rejoice in the fact that our 20-somethings are not like the Biola kids or not like some of those Biola kids. And they serve. And they replicate and they multiply themselves. And um, I haven't given $400,000 to the school district. But we, over the last five years, collectively have given over $400,000 to the school district. I don't teach in the schools 
but I know a lot of teachers here at Antioch who are close friends, and I love enjoying the fact that they are salt and light in the school district. I derive some measure of satisfaction from that. And I hope that other people can look at me and say, what Ken does, or what Kip does, or what other people do that, that work at the church, or the elders, or, or people that are on the lead team that have unbelievable leadership abilities, I, that, that as they're doing those things, that you're able to look at that and say, I like my church. Why? It's, it's led well, or it's led maturely, or there are people that really would bleed for this thing. It's not just a job. It's not just about them. Or I like the fact that the staff gets along together. They actually hang out together. Um, I hope you would understand that, that all of the things that are worth taking pride in are worth taking pride in for all of us. And if that's the case, guess what? All of the weaknesses are what? Are the things that we collectively bear. There was something unbelievable about Daniel's prayer. Daniel was so young when he was taken off to captivity, he didn't commit any of the sins that led Israel into captivity. You know what I'm saying? Like, he didn't do it. But Daniel's prayer, when we get to the book of Daniel, he's like, God, forgive us. We transgressed against you. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if it's like we can enjoy each other's successes, glory in that even. It's the right kind of glory, right? And that we carry each other's burdens. Boy, that sounds eerily scriptural. And that we would bear with one another and that we would bless and not curse and that we would serve and sacrifice and give our gifts so that the whole thing would grow better, which implies what? That it always has room for improvement. You know, there's something interesting about all the criticism the church gets. You want to know why? Because what's the opposite of church? Nothing. It's a whole lot easier to criticize something than it is to criticize nothing. I mean, think about it. There's, there's going to church and then there's not. And not, it, no one knows what not looks like. It's, it's different for every not person. Every not person doesn't go to the same breakfast place and bend on Sundays. They don't, you know, we're not going to go to church, so let's all go to Applebee's. I don't even know if they do breakfast. But, but we, don't all, we don't all congregate at not. Not is, is diffused throughout the atmosphere. It's, it's pretty hard to criticize not. So I think we have to say that. It's like just because we can beat up on the church doesn't make church wrong. It means that there's room for improvement. When there's room for improvement, what does that say to each of us individually? That there's something we can do. I had an unbelievable experience this week with um, someone in this church, a parent. Um, and they came to me, and it started this way. Uh, my student went to the to youth group and didn't like it. Um, and we said, hey, tough luck, it's one week, go back. My student went three times and didn't like it. Um, you know, those things happen. Uh, they're shy, but they didn't get connected. Uh, they kind of hung out on the wall, nobody reached out to them, it, and it was not a good experience. And, I'm, and he says, Ken, so I've got to be honest with you, 
Um, I'm, I'm, I'm his dad. It's my responsibility that my kid likes church, that my kid has a place that's going to receive him well, that my kid is going to be loved and affirmed and drawn into community. It's my responsibility. And I kind of knew where this was going because I've heard it over and over and over again over the last 20 years. Um, what's, what's unfortunate is that most Christians think we're free agents. We act like free agents. At any time, if, if the team is no longer what we want it to be, like LeBron James, we'll take our tithe money and, and our whatever else elsewhere. You know what I'm saying? Like, we'll, we'll go invest somewhere else, but we, we treat church like free agents. And so I knew what was coming. So uh, this dad says, so I'm responsible and, and I, you know, whatever. So uh, my, my response was, we needed to start, we need to start looking. And so I'm kind of like, oh, boy, that hurts, right? And then after just like a momentary pause, he says, but then I realized, and I kind of perked up. And he's like, then I realized about two days later, like, I am his dad. I am responsible. Therefore, I need to do something. And so I need to get in there and figure out how to make the youth group better or how to encourage the people that are working really hard as volunteers in the youth group and, and to make sure they have what they need, um, to offer to have the youth group over to my home if needed, to go ask enough questions so that I have my mind wrapped around the problem. But I am the dad. I am the primary discipler. I am responsible. And Antioch is our church family. Yeah. And, uh, I've been waiting 20 years for that story, right? And I just was screaming inside, like, how do I bottle this up um, and pass it along? Because there was something so mature so responsible in that, so theologically deep and correct. I've been waiting 20 years. I've been pleading with even friends that leave church for those reasons. And I'm like, don't you understand when you start on that road where that leads? It means that every time it doesn't work, you pick up stakes and move again. When does that ever stop and when do we ever say it's not ultimately about me or my one child, it's ultimately about us doing all we can in a healthy environment to make it work as best we can. I mean, if we, if we go down that slippery slope, we're always running. If we put down roots, the roots can go deeper and deeper and deeper and hopefully eventually our kids love going to church. So I'm excited um, this dad's on the search committee for a new youth pastor. Um, I want people like that around me. I want people like that speaking into this church. I want people like that dictating the future of this. But I was so blessed by that. I got to see a 30-year-old this week in a meeting, a board meeting of a lot of adults, and there's a financial need, and, um, and it's a real financial need. And there it was. Uh, and I watched this 30-year-old in the church um, as everyone's kind of sitting there quietly go, I'm good for one. And everyone kind of looks up. What do you mean? 
I'll give a thousand. And then all of a sudden, the older men, one by one, I'll give 3,000. I'll give five. And I watched a 30-year-old who I respect immensely lead a group of men in what it looks like to be fully, fully invested and committed to the things that they believe are, are of the Lord. Um, I would take a bullet for those kinds of things. I want to die in that kind of community. Um, there's an opportunity in the comments to get involved at Antioch after the service. It's eight weeks or longer. You choose. But I think there's something really interesting about Bend, and, and it's, it's true of me too, so I, it's us. Everyone in Bend's an entrepreneur, I mean, if you haven't noticed. Um, we don't like being told what to do, but here's, here's our, our cultural flaw in Bend. We all would say we love community. We just won't commit for it. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we're all in love with the idea of community, but when it really comes to sacrificing an evening or a weekend or committing to something that's, that's repetitive where I'm, I'm like now stuck in it and it's going to have to dictate my schedule and I can't just say every week whether I want to do it or not, then we pull back. It's a really interesting thing that Bend, that I've noticed in Bend, but we don't, we're not aware of it. We're not self-aware because if you talk to anyone in Bend, we're so organic and earthy that it's like, oh yeah, deep community, deep relationship, authentic fellowship. Oh yeah, I'm really into that. What are you willing to give for it? I don't, I, what do you mean? I don't know that I'm willing to give anything, but if you call me next Tuesday for a happy hour, I might join you. At Crux or something. You know what I mean? But I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to keep it all here on this side. I don't like to submit to something. But the body requires submission. The fact that we all have different gifts means we need each other to lean in. That somehow in my sacrificing, I, I give something away, but I can expect that I'll also get something out of that. And so what are we willing to truly commit for spiritual community? Um, as, as, a, as a cool story of this, and it's kind of interesting that it comes at this point in the sermon, um, but I want to invite a friend up that's got a testimony to share that's been a long time in coming, um, and it just happened to be that we could get it on this week, and I think it's pertinent. But Devin Schultz um, is, uh, is right there. And um, I want you guys just to hear a little bit of his story, and then I'll pray for us in conclusion, and we'll go back to a time of worship. Good morning. So uh, just kind of a segue, you know, that little exercise that Ken had us do about getting up and uh, shaking each other's hands. And I was having a conversation over here with Jason and uh, his wife, and you know, I said, so... How long have you been here? Uh, five, six months, and he's like years. And you know, that's kind of what it was for me. I was invisible. Um, uh, my wife and I, we were here in the beginning. And uh, although I attended Antioch, I definitely did not participate. I wasn't here emotionally or spiritually. I found uh, um, 
it to be very confusing to me why God wasn't doing things for me and I had to do things for the church and I just couldn't find that connection. I was very self-absorbed and so uh, um, I'm just going to share a little bit about my testimony. Um, it's PG, so uh, um, what I want to talk about really is, uh, I find my place here. You know, emotionally and spiritually is where I was lost, and I was, I was um, trying so hard to get connected and to participate, but I was really on, on my own journey to uh, just uh, take care of myself, and hopefully, you know, I get blessed in the meantime. And I found that, uh, you know, the more unmanageable I became, um, it wasn't long uh, before life started to fall apart. And as I sunk deeper into unmanageability, um, I became delusioned about where my values were coming from. And uh, because I didn't want to be found out or share with anybody what truly was going on, I pulled away from God, from church, from my own family, and from the community group that uh, I belonged to with my wife. And having... Uh, uh, you know, run out of resourcefulness. I coped with overworking. I coped with alcohol. Uh, my response to everything was going to be bitter and resentful um, or just isolate, which I was really good at. I was really good at isolating and um, being in a group of people. I could be the one to walk out and not have a conversation with anybody. So ever, uh, after running out of resourcefulness, I lost hope in myself, and I believed in a lie that God abandoned me as well as my family. And it came to a point that I wasn't going to change. I wanted to change, but I wasn't really wanting to change. I wasn't willing to submit. I wasn't willing to ask for forgiveness. I wasn't inviting, and I was guarded. Most of my energy was spent on trying to hide my true self and to control my worry world, to have some sense of security. And in my darkest hour, I checked out, spiritually and emotionally. Faced with accountability, I rebelled against all authority. Uh, viable options were leaving my family and taking my life at that point. So it came down to, I was having a standoff with the police, and it looked as if the, um, the authorities had to make a choice, and I was not going to back down. And so when the rifle found its target and the shot was about to be fired, God intervened, and a police dog hit me and took me down. And, you know, in that moment, I was so bitter and angry and pissed off at the world and at church, but something inside of me said, you just have to ask for help not to save yourself from the situation that you're in, but to ask God, really show himself for who he really is and not what I want him to be for me. And so in that moment, I had to make that choice, and I did, and thank God I did. And in that time, sitting in jail, kind of wondering what was going to happen, why was I spared, why was I alive, um, God revealed himself to him, and he said, you know, I never left. I never left you. And I love this quote because this is what 
has helped bring me back to community and to church. And as we don't need accountability groups, we need fellow warriors, someone to fight alongside us, and someone to watch our back. And while I was going through this whole uh, selfish reality that I was in, our community group was beside my wife, lifting her up, praying for her, praying for our family. People in this church were praying for me, and I didn't even know that. But God used all of that to bring me back and bring me to my knees to realize that community saved me and that I need people to fight for me when I'm down and out, that I don't want to be invisible anymore. And I think that's the most important thing. Being invisible is a great excuse to just check out and cruise and not really be asked, really, how are you doing? So with that, I just want to encourage those of you out there you're not alone. That was my biggest excuse to separate myself, was that I'm alone, but you're not. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had this to say. He said, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a rea uh, reality created by God in Christ Jesus in which we may participate. I'm just going to invite you, if, if you have a hunger to be a member of a local church with all the blessings and the joys and the trials and the struggles that go with it, but to have that stability in your life, to know who you are, where you belong, and where your family is, as I read this prayer from the Psalms, I would just invite you to stand um, and please don't feel any pressure, but I just, there's something about the history of the church and standing when scripture is read or standing for prayers in the sense of there's an agreement um, of what's being prayed. Um, but yeah, if, if you want to pray along with me that way, feel free to just stand. Psalm 84, uh, verse 8 says this, Psalm 84. Hear my prayer, O Lord, God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Father, we just commit this time to you. We commit this church to you, wanting to keep it in your hands. Forgive us for the things we do wrong. Pray that you would grow us so that we might do things better. Um, heal us if and when we wound each other. That somehow, as we go through this journey as a local church, we truly would be like a city on a hill. And this community would see something alive and fresh and desirable in and through us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.